All right, take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to Second uh, Samuel. As we continue in this journey through the through the life of David, Francis Thompson shares kind of a personal testimony, if you will, although it's done in poetic form in the old hymn, "The Hound of Heaven." I spent way much, way too much time reading and studying this poem this week, so I'm not going to do an English lesson. I'll let Wanda and others handle that. But I was, I was just enthralled by this old poem. Thompson studied to be a priest. He was raised in a Catholic family. He studied to be a priest, but that didn't last long. He wanted to go to medical school, but he flunked out quickly. He joined the army, and they put him out after one day. That didn't last long. Eventually, he became an opium addict and lived homelessly on the streets of London during the darkest period of London's history. It's actually during the days of Jack the Ripper I was reading. So Thompson is taking up with all the prostitutes and the people living in that portion of the town. Many of them are afraid for their lives because of this mass murderer that's out there. But a friend who saw some hope in him helped him get into an addiction facility where he was able to just experience God's grace. And he could not get away from the reality of God's persistent love in his life. And that's the, that's the theme of the, the poem, The Hound of Heaven. I put just the last verses in three of the sections of the poem. It's a lengthy poem. Uh, and, it, and it's written in the Old English, so it's, it's, it's hard to, to listen to it, I know. And I'm not going to read, but just a tiny little part of it. But one of the things that he says in this poem early in it, which is kind of the foundational truth for his whole life, he says this, For though I knew his love who followed, yet I was sore adread, lest leaving him I might have naught beside. Thompson's greatest fear was that if he trusted the Lord and followed the Lord, he'd leave everything else behind. But the poem is the story of, in fact, just the opposite of that happened. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the liberant ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him and from running laughter, from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. He then goes on and shares another verse and recounts how he's tried to run from the Lord. And then ends that verse by saying, fear knew not how to evade as love. And this is my word, knew only to pursue. Still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy came the following feet. And the voice above their beat, naught shelters thee who wilt not shelterest me. Or other, in other words, nothing will shelter you if you don't take shelter in me. He ends the, the poem talking about all the relationships that he's tried to find that would nourish his soul. And it ends with saying, never did any milk of hers once bless my thirsting mouth. Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy. And past those noised feet, a voice comes yet more fleet. Naught contents thee, who is not contentest in me. So he's saying, God is saying to him, you'll never be content. You'll never be sheltered. You'll never be satisfied if you don't find that in me. And in nothing else. See, the hound of heaven is just a poetic picture of our God who graciously, relentlessly pursues his own. And he does not give up on those who are his. He does not give up on those who have come to him through faith in Christ. That's why Paul can say that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, including us. And Thompson understood that. Now, every child of God, every earthbound disciple goes through the battle that we saw David go through last week and fail miserably at it. 
there in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. We all, like David, battle against fleshly desires. We battle against wanting to be autonomous over our own lives, and we lose those battles. And when we do lose those battles, God in his grace brings us into seasons where he seems very far away from us. Where his grace is just a song that the praise team sings. Where his mercy and love seem absent. Not just from our lives, but from the world. We don't see it at all. And David is in one of those seasons. Now, we don't see that explicitly in between chapter 11 and chapter 12. But David is in a dark place. And he is in that place where sin takes us. It's a place where all of us, and I've been praying all week, actually two weeks, that the Lord, through his Holy Spirit, would just give us a measure of honesty with ourselves to see the darkness of our own souls. Because it is by grace that David comes to the realization of where he is away from God, of where he is in the dark, of where he is as a sinner. And where he is as an elect child of God. And so, in this passage, we saw David last week doing a lot of sending, right? He's, he's sending men to fight battles. He's sending his men to get Bathsheba and bring her to him. He's sending men to fight. He's sending men to kill. He's sending men to die. He's sending men to concoct a cover-up story. So David's doing a whole lot of sending. There's a whole lot of messengers there. But God, as we saw last week at the end, is the one who sees and does the sending now. It says in the end of chapter 11, the thing that David done displeased the Lord, or it was evil in God's sight. I didn't point it out last week, but it's just an interesting paradox. Earlier up there, just a few verses, David said to the messenger and sent him back to the battlefield, tell Joab, don't let this thing displease you or don't let this be evil in your sight. So David doesn't see anything as evil in any of that that goes on in chapter 11 yet. But God did. And God in his grace does some sending. So before I even read the text, turn back to Psalm 32. I read that a few minutes ago. And if you'll just look at your sermon notes that are there in the bulletin, the first point in the message is that what we have here is a picture of a restless and miserable man. And again, we don't see that initially in chapter 12, but David is a restless, miserable man. And we know that from the greater context of God's word and from the songs that for now have dried up. David is not writing any songs in chapter 11 and 12. But following it, he does. And I read, blessed is the man, the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But look at verses 3 and 4. This is the reality of what's going on in David's life. Now, what David had done in chapter 11 was done for the most part secretly, right? We remember that. Now, I'm sure there were a few people that were just, you know, you didn't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to figure out, wait a minute, this is not adding up. And Joab knew exactly what was going on. As did, I think, some others. So what David did, he did secretly. But we also must recognize that what he did, he did willfully. This was not a stumble. This was not a mistake. This was willful sin, willful cover-up, willful lusting, adultery, coveting, and murder, and lying. Okay? He didn't just stumble. In that sense. So what he did, he did silently, he did secretly, but he did willfully. And on the surface, it must have looked good. All right? So scholars tell us that what happens here in chapter 12 could have happened as it was at least a year after the other things have transpired in chapter 11. Okay? So this child has been born. Some some scholars say he could have been well advanced in years, okay? He's still considered a child, but could be way past infancy 
The text just doesn't tell us how old this child was that was born to David and Bathsheba. But the point is that there's been a long period of time in between what happened in chapter 11 and what now unfolds in chapter 12. And everything looked good. David's got a new wife. He's got a new child. The army is still out fighting the way it's supposed to fight. David is ruling, it seems to be. You know, he's taking care of his kingdom. Things, things seem to be going along. But that's on the exterior. God sees his heart and gives insight to his prophet. Every single one of us sitting here this day look one certain way or another to each other. With our physical eyes, we see each other right now. You see who's beside you. You see what you saw yourself in the mirror before you left and came here. But how much like David and his kingdom is that appearance? What's going on beneath the surface today? Think about that. David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. Literally, the word is roaring. So there is a roar in his inner man. Verse 4, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. As by the heat of the summer. Later on in Psalm 51, which we'll read in a few minutes, he says, let the bones you have broken. Sin brings physical, emotional, psychological, relational consequences, right? I mean, you hide in it and you're going to be burdened down under it. And that's what David is acknowledging. It looks good on the outside, but I'm a miserable, dried up man on the inside. He is restless and he is miserable. And that much is clear from the word. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Look back over in verse 31. I mean, in in, in Psalms 31. Look at what he says there. Be gracious. I'm looking at verse 9 and 10. Psalm 31 verse. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Wow. The prodigal son in Luke 15, when Jesus tells us that story, the prodigal son thought what I need to do is get dad's money and get away from dad and get away from this place and get away from this family and just go and live my life. And only when he ended up staying with the pigs and eating their leftovers did he come to his senses. David wasn't quite that sharp. He needed help. He needed someone to come to him and help him come to his senses. Some of us do too. And God in his grace sends that person. So look at the text with me. I'll read the first portion of it. Again, I'll finish with the, first, with the last sentence of chapter 11. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. The one, <clears throat> one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing 
And because he had no pity. See how merciful and relentless our God is here. It is beautiful. It is scandalous. How relentless and merciful God is. Now earlier in verse in chapter 7. You remember God made this covenant with David. About his throne being an eternal throne. But God also made this statement as he was given that covenant. He said, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But, God says, my steadfast love will not depart from him. The discipline of a loving father upon his wayward son is unfolding before us here in chapter 12. This is what we see happening. Now, there's a dynamic of leadership that I've observed and one you've probably seen, too. We've seen it unfold before us lots of times in lots of places. It happens all the time. This dynamic of leadership is that the higher you go, the more authority you have, the less accountability there seems to be. And that the higher you are in that organizational structure or in that leadership structure, the more tendency is there is to have a closed door policy. And that closed door policy means that your subordinates and those who work for you or with you are not given the freedom to come in and speak to you about your own life. There's Christian leaders today who, who we read about who will not allow their subordinates to come and question them in any way. So David seems to have this closed door policy. But you know what God thinks about closed door policies, right? They don't mean jack, okay? They don't mean nothing. So... This closed-door policy meant nothing to God. And in this account where we've seen a whole lot of people sending and getting messengers and doing all this sending, God has his own messenger who has come to do God's work. And that's what we see before us. Nathan was sent by God. Now, Nathan does what prophets throughout the Old Testament, and indeed Jesus in the New Testament does, which is bring truth to leaders, (laughs) Truth to religious leaders lots of times. Um, one, one, one writer said prophets spoke truth to power. So Samuel did that to Saul, right? Didn't always go well, but Samuel tried to speak truth to Saul. Later on, we see where Elijah comes and tries to speak truth to Ahab. That didn't go very well either. Jeremiah's whole ministry was speaking truth to the kings here at the end of the kingdom. And he ended up in jail for it. Jesus spoke truth to those in power and it cost him his life. So it doesn't always go well for the prophet who's coming and speaking truth to the power. So Nathan comes to David in obedience to God. But listen, in, in regard to David, he is not safe. Okay? Just recognize that. There's a danger in going before this king... And just not really being sure how he's going to respond to what's about to unfold. But Nathan is absolutely safe in obedience to God. My point in that is that we may not always be in that place where we're comfortable and safe when we're doing what the Lord has called us to do. But we are safe in God's will. We are safe in obedience to him. And Nathan, that's where Nathan's going. And Nathan is going to speak these words. And what he gives is, is, is as you look at your outline... A revealing and crushing parable. And it is a parable, but Nathan tells this story to David. Now, I think he may have come in to David on this particular case. David is the king, and what is the king's responsibility? To carry out justice, to serve as a judge. So Nathan comes in to David. I have a case for you, David. There's a situation, king, that you need to know about. And he begins to unfold this. Now, we're given no indication here that David at any point in time thinks that Nathan is just making this up. In fact, David's response to it is livid. He thinks it's very real. And it is, just not not the way David thinks it is, okay? So, Nathan comes to him laying out the story, okay? And look at Nathan's language. He's using the language of of a shepherd and sheep. And immediately, David's heartstrings, I believe, are pulled. Why? Well, because 
in chapter 7 again in God's covenant with David, he says, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep. David, before he was a king, before he was anything else, was a shepherd. So he knows the shepherd's responsibility. He knows the shepherd's affection for his sheep. He knows that he's been called to shepherd the people of God. And he knows that he's failed at it, although he's not ready to admit it yet. And so the language of a shepherd and sheep, of a ewe lamb, I mentioned last week that this gives us some picture even of Bathsheba and how she was precious to her husband and to her father and to her grandfather. All of this is pointing back to that. This lamb in the story was loved, bought, cared for, precious, ate out of the owner's plate, drank from the owner's cup, slept with the owner and his wife and his children. This was a poor man, and he loved that lamb. And there's a rich man who has multiple sheep, huge herds, huge resources. And when this guest comes, he won't take his own. He steals the poor man's sheep, kills it, and feeds it. And David responded just the way he should have. And Nathan has laid a beautiful trap. God has laid a beautiful trap. You see, what Nathan has done is played to and awoken David's sense of justice. David knows the difference between right and wrong. He understands what a man should and should not do. He knows what should and should not be done. Right? And this whole sense of justice and right and wrong has been awakened in him. The only problem with it is he's looking out. He's not looking in as he hears this sermon. One commentator I was reading this week said, It's both easy and common to lose this personal focus and let the biblical story blur into generalized pronouncements, fuzzy cosmic opinions, and religious indignation. He goes on and says, as he listens to Nathan preach a sermon, he thinks it's about somebody else. And he gets all worked up over somebody else's sin. And this is the religion, he says, of a dormitory bull session of TV spectators and talk show gossip. It's the religion of the moral judgmentalism, self-righteous finger pointing, and the religion of accusation and blame. And with each additional word of Nathan's sermon, David gets more religious. His indignation is palpable, right? And Nathan has him right where he wants him. The old Scottish preacher Andrew Wythe said, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before David even knew he had a sword. One writer said, David's head's in the noose. He just doesn't realize the string is there to pull it. So he's got him right where he wants him. Man, is that not really how it works sometimes? Boy, preacher, I'm glad so-and-so's here. They need to hear this. I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of saying, dang, I wish so-and-so had been here. I wish they could have heard it. We always hear the word and hear the sermon and are ready to point out. Nathan's not going to let us do that. David says, this man deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. So because this man killed, because he took, and because he was hard-hearted about it, David said, he deserves to have these things happen. And by the way, this idea of fourfold is going to play out in David's life in more miserable ways than he understands because he's about to lose four sons over the next few years because of his sin in chapter 11. So it is going to play out. Verse 7, Nathan says, you are the man. I don't know how that went down in that throne room, in that room. I don't know if David and Nathan are just sitting down having a pastor to congregant conversation. I don't know if David's on the throne and Nathan's standing there. I don't, I don't know what happened, but I do believe, remember when I was talking about David and Mephibosheth, that I believe when Mephibosheth came in there that David got down and hugged him and got down on his level 
And I think I don't think David was ready to get down to the level that he was about to get to. But when David pointed, when Nathan pointed that long bony finger into David's face, it broke him and crushed him. It broke him and crushed him. And God be praised. Because that breaking and crushing is a gift. It is a gracious, merciful gift. And many of us need it. You are the man. Thus says the Lord. That's what the prophet is sent to say. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. David, the God who is over all of Israel, the God who called you, the God who is the Lord of heaven's armies, the sovereign of all the earth, who pulled you up out of it, implied in this, who brought you up out of that, out of that field, out of that family, and made you the king, that God has something to say to you. I anointed you, it says there, king over Israel, and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. I would add to you as much more. So what God is doing here is just reminding David through Nathan of how gracious and kind he has been. JT pointed us earlier to Psalm 103. Forget not all his benefits. David, don't forget how God has benefited you. How he's called you, saved you, delivered you, empowered you, esteemed you, blessed you in every way. And that phrase there that that troubles us a little bit, like he gave into your arms your master's wives, I believe that's just a, 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 a slogan, that's just a way to understand that everything that belonged to Saul was now given to you. Everything that was his is yours. Meaning God has put into your hands, David, anything and everything that you have desired and wanted. And then he says, if that were too little, I would add more than that. Remember, David, how gracious and good God has been to you because you have forgotten. Why, he says in verse 9, have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Despised. That's a hard word, isn't it? Oh, I just ignored it. I just forgot it. I just let the circumstances and the situation and the people around me influence me in the wrong way. It was just a momentary, you know, boh. I just, no. You have despised. You have seen and made a choice into what you're going to love and hate. And David, you have hated the Word of God. You have despised it. And you have despised it in this way. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And you have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So Nathan is specific in what it is that David has done. And how he has despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil. And David, here's what you've done, David. In fact, you've been worse than Saul. You've been worse than those kings that Samuel warned the people about, the worldly kings, who are just going to take and take and take. Not only did David take, but he killed. Not only did he take daughters and sons, but he took wives and slept with them and then killed the husband. David is a taker. And God is a giver. And he's confronted with that contrast and with that reality. But it goes on. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, killed him with the sword of the Ammonites, it says. And in verse 10, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. What is happening there in those couple of verses, I see as an as as a a worldly, if you will, a a time in space reversal of the covenant that God made with him in chapter seven. It's not an eternal reversal because God said, I will establish your throne forever in chapter 7. But here he's saying, your throne that is established forever in an eternal sense will be nothing but a source of heartache and pain and violence 
in your life. And that's what's about to unfold. It's a real-time reversal of an eternal promise that is made. Your throne will endure, David, but a sword over the next few generations will mark it. That will be the mark of your kingdom. Your kingdom, David, will be cut up, carved up, and divided up. This is the end of David's high point. He has crashed down, and God is building him back up to some degree. But make no mistake, church, his kingdom will never be the same as long as he's alive and as his sons are alive. His physical sons. It will never be the same. Sin has its consequences. The Word tells us that we do reap what we sow. And sometimes that harvest lasts a long time. Now, God's grace is over it and under it all. But it's tough. It's tough. He says, not only have you despised the Word of the Lord, but do you see what it says there? You have despised the Lord. You cannot make that disconnect there in verses 9 and 10. Is that not what Jesus told Saul when he struck him down that day? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, Jesus said? You persecute my people, you persecute me. You attack my people, you attack me. You despise God's word and ignore it. You are ignoring and despising God himself. Nathan says. And God takes it personal. He takes it seriously. And then he pronounces this judgment, this this consequence that, again, it it, it seems kind of tough. It's, It's hard for us in some ways to reconcile this with our cultural understanding today. It says there, Thus says the Lord in verse 11, Behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David did it in the dark. He did it behind closed doors. He did it so as not to be seen and not to be caught. And he killed and lied to provide a cover-up and this conspiracy that none of this would ever be found out. And exactly what Jesus said would take place in Luke chapter 12 is what we see unfolding here in this passage and what's going to follow up. Absalom, by the way, David's son, will take David's wives and concubines and later on will put a tent a canopy above on the rooftop where everybody in Jerusalem can see it, and those women will parade in and out of there as Absalom takes them to bed. God is not the author of this sin. He is sovereign over his judgments, and he is sovereign over what men make decisions to do. And he is not the author of that sin, but he will use it to fulfill his judgment and carry out his word. And so what David thought would be hidden, in fact, Jesus said, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. He says in Luke 12, 3, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the rooftops. On David's rooftop, his sin that he tried to hide will be magnified and made evident. To every citizen of the kingdom who sees it. We reap what we sow. And look at David's response. I'm mindful even before I read verse 13 of Samuel's encounter earlier with Saul. Saul had gone into battle and defeated the enemy and taken All of the spoil that he was supposed to put to the sword. And the prophet walked into camp and heard the bleeding of the cows and the the goats and all the animals. And he said, what's that sound I hear? And Saul begins to make excuses. Well, the people. The people did this. The people did that. David doesn't make any excuses. 
Ralph Davis says there's no excuse, no cloaking, no searching for a loophole. There's no pretext put forward, no human weakness pleaded. He acknowledges guilt openly, candidly, although briefly, and without prevarication, Davis says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, in our religious self-righteousness, we go, that's not enough, David. You need to be more specific than that. We want to see a list, don't we? We want to hear an encounter-by-encounter confession. And sometimes that may be warranted in certain circumstances. I'm not preaching a full message on repentance today or on how it needs to be done. All I do know from this passage of Scripture is what David said there revealed what was going on in his heart, and God saw it as sufficient. Because what comes next is scandalous. It should be offensive to the religious righteous. There's no way under God's blue heaven that David should have heard these next words. I have sinned against the Lord, David said. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. That should catch our breath. That should catch our breath. There's a repentant and forgiven man before us here. And let me just make this application, okay? The condition of our hearts is determined by our response to God's word, period. No excuses, no pretext, no pointing out and looking at somebody else. The condition of our heart is revealed in our response to God's word. And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, the introduction there says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. And you will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. 
Do good design and your good pleasure build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I have sinned against the Lord, David said. And Psalm 51 reveals the depth of that understanding and the depth of that repentance. David recognizes, and just listen to this, and I can, I can give these to you later on. I didn't put these in your sermon notes. David recognizes first that his sin was first and foremost against God. Okay? Now he says there in the psalm and in 2 Samuel, I have sinned against the Lord. Okay? And we understand that, and he says here in Psalm 51 that, you know, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David is not dismissing or diminishing the reality that people's lives have been taken and crushed by his sin. He's not diminishing those horizontal implications and casualties and things that happen because of our sin. What he is emphasizing is that the root of the issue is against God. That he has sinned against a holy and righteous God. He has sinned against and despised the gracious kindness of God in his self-righteous, selfish actions. He sees that for what it is. And genuine repentance recognizes that sin is first and foremost against God, and that's where the work has to start. Secondly, he falls on and relies on solely upon the mercy of God. The undeserved grace, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast, your hesed, your covenant love, according to your mercy, he says. David is throwing himself on the undeserved grace and kindness of God. He does not say, well, it had been a long dry spell with me and my wife, so I needed something else. He does not say, I was bored, or I had pressure, or things were going on. No. I have sinned, and God, I deserve your justice and your judgment, but I cry out for your mercy. He recognizes that. Thirdly, he acknowledges that he's, listen, he's not a man who stumbled. He's not a man who made a little mistake. He's not a man who misses. He is a sinner. He is a sinner in who he is and what he's done. In sin did my mother conceive me. He is not saying that what happened between my mom and dad was sin. He's saying, though, that from the time I was born, I was a fallen human being in need of grace. I was born a sinner, and I got better at it the older I got. That's what we mean when we talk about what it means to be outside of God's grace. That's what we mean when we talk about depravity. That we are born sinners and we just get better at it. That's the, that's the record. That's the story. That's the truth of God's word. That's who I am, he says. And notice what he does. He simply cries out for and rests in the gospel. I have to have the gospel. I have to have a substitute. I have to have God do for me what I cannot do for myself. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Our minds should go back for just a second to the Exodus. When God says, I'm going to send the angel of death through the camp. And everyone not covered by the blood on the lintel will die. And God instructed them to take the hyssop and dip it in the basin with the lamb's blood and put it over the lintel. And when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over. So that's the Passover. That's what we do at the communion table when we remember and celebrate that. I need someone else to die. I need the blood to be shed. I need to be washed. And I can't do it myself. And David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me, in verse 10, a clean heart, O God. I can't do a heart transplant on myself. I can't fix it myself. Renew a right spirit within me. Yes, David, going back over to chapter 12, this man deserves to die. But David, you will not die. 
Because God is more gracious than you can imagine. He is kinder than you've ever thought about. And this is scandalous. Nevertheless, verse 14, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. There are consequences, right? We understand that. There is forgiveness and there is grace. David, you will not die, but there will be a death. There will be consequences. It's not talked about a whole lot in regard to this, but I can't help but just look at this through the eyes of the gospel and see a New Testament foreshadowing of the fact that one day a substitute son would die to pay the penalty for my sin. And that God loved me while I was still a sinner. So much that he sent his son. That what I had done deserved death. That's the wage our sin deserves. But the free gift of God is righteousness and forgiveness and grace through his son. Yes, David, someone will die. But it won't be you. It won't be you. Let me just, I'm not going to finish this. I realize I'm not going to get done with it. And I don't even know how we're going to, you know, we'll deal with that next week, okay? But let me, okay, here's, here's how I want to wrap this up, okay? You are the man, David. You are the woman, sister. You see, in general, okay, let's just leave this in general terms for just a second. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23. Okay, that's, that's the reality. Paul lays that out graphically in chapter 2 of Romans and in chapter 1. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, every one of us. We've gone our own way. So all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And in Romans 6.23, we've earned the wages of that sin, which is death. But God in his grace has given us the opportunity to trust in Christ. So Nathan comes with this kind of a general message, but he comes with a very specific message. And, and I pray that through the Holy Spirit, he points that bony finger in my face and in yours and says, You are the man. You are the woman. Don't point out to somebody else. Conviction about sin, confession and repentance is a gracious, merciful gift. It is a gift. Paul wrote to the church there in Corinth in 2 Corinthians. He'd written them a hard letter. We don't have that hard letter. But he said, as it is, I rejoice that you were grieved because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. He goes on and says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So let's just let the Lord do a little work here for a minute. I was all excited to see the Panthers name a new coach this week, Dave Canales. I didn't know much of anything about Dave. Read a column that a Scott Fowler, a sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, wrote about a book that Dave and Lizzie Canales had written a few years ago. The title of the book is Why Marriage? with a question mark after it. Turns out that Dave Canales and his wife Lizzie were both raised in Christian families, came to faith at a young age. And from before he got married to Lizzie and then nine months afterward, Dave Canales lived a, a hidden private life, he thought. He binge drank. He was addicted to pornography. And he repeatedly cheated on his wife time and time again. All the while they would lead marriage conferences sit at tables and serve as a mentoring couple. 
And they wrote about this in this book. I read that book this week. I didn't have time to read that book. But I was just, I was just compelled by what I heard to, to read that book. And, and I'm not going to get into all the detail of it. I would encourage you to read it. But the whole point of that book is the healing that comes through transparency and confession and repentance. Now, it is painful. It hurts. And even today, they'll say, we're still, we're still working through some of these things. But Dave and Lizzie Canales, in, in the book, in their marriage, and based on what his peers say, are being faithful to live that out and show us what can happen when we confess our sin and when we repent of it and when we let God do his work in our lives. The greatest fear that he had and that she had was that they won't be able to handle the truth. And they recognize, you know what, God's grace is big enough to cover both sides of this deal. I use that in contrast to what we episode, what we see so often in our world, what we so often see in the news, what we in the evangelical circles saw unfold four and five years ago with Robbie Zacharias. Where this worldwide esteemed evangelist and apologist and man traveling around preaching, his own international ministry organization did the study and then came out that said over years and over continents worldwide, he was guilty of sexting, manipulation, sexual abuse, spiritual abuse, and rape. And it didn't come out until he's gone. And a whole legacy, it seems, is just crushed underneath that. Why would God do that? Not, not meaning why would he, not Ravi in those things. Why would God bring that to light? Why would God want us to know about Ravi and Paul Pressler? And leaders within the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 20 or 30 years and within other evangelical circles. Why would that come to light? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, if you want to alert there, look there, that those things came to light recently for the same reason that things came to light 3,000, 2,000 years ago. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I read part of this last week, and I'm just going to read a small portion of it. First, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and all were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink. That's all referring to the Exodus. God led the children of Israel out of Egypt under the cloud of his protection. They passed through the Red Sea. They were under the authority and leadership of Moses is what he's saying there. They ate the same spiritual food, the manna. Everybody's together under the cloud of God's moving and provision and care. All drank the same spiritual drink, he says, and that all points us forward, he says, to Christ in verse 4. Nevertheless, in verse 5, with most of them God was not pleased For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. The people sat down and ate and drank and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. These things happened, he says in verse 11, to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction. That's why the news of Ravi and all these other people come to light. Not so we can point a long bony finger in somebody else's face and go, oh, I can't believe they did that. But so we can look in the mirror of God's word And say, that was an example to me. A warning to me. An opportunity for us who still have time. By God's grace, I'm sitting in this room at Westwood today. And Nathan's speaking to my heart. And saying, you still have time before you draw your last breath to repent. 
You still have time while that person's still alive to make it right. You still have time while your children are still even care to listen to you to humble yourself and say, here's how I've stumbled. And you need to see it and know it. So you'll look to Jesus and not to me. You're here today by grace. So am I. And this message is here to make us so uncomfortable that we'll squirm in our britches and wish we weren't. But it's here because God loves you. And he wants you to know that your sin will kill you, your marriage, your family, your children, and generations to come. And now is the time to deal with it. So it's time to ask some hard questions. What hidden sin is there in my life that I hope nobody ever finds out about? It's down there, and that's where I want it to stay. So what is it? What's there? What in my life, if it unfolds, will bring about loss and devastation and destruction? Remember last week, David, just pause for one second. Think about what's going to happen if you take this little girl. Think about what's going to happen to her. Think about what's going to happen to her husband and to her father. Think about that young girl on that screen. She's not without a dad or a mom or a husband or somebody someplace. She's not nameless. She's a victim in some way. Think about what's going to happen if this unfolds the way it's rolling right now. What will it do to my wife? What will it do to my husband? What will it do to my son, daughter, and grandchildren? What will it do to my church, my coworkers? What will it do to my testimony? If I died today and this comes to light, what, what will be said? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to correct? What do I need to redirect? Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3 when he was talking to the church at Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. He said, remember then what you've received. Keep it, he says, and repent. Is there anything going on in my life or your life that's going to disqualify me from winning the race and running it? Those are the questions today. God in his grace has spoken to every single one of us through Nathan. You're the man. You're the woman. You're the boy. You're the girl. God has been so kind and so gracious. Let's pray. Father, with David, we agree that against you and you alone have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But we also agree and recognize that there are consequences to that on a horizontal basis. Spouses, children, family members, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to do a a sweet work in each of our hearts right now. God, restore to me, restore to us, the joy of your salvation. We thank you for grace that's more amazing than we can fathom with our mental abilities or with our physical brain. And God, thank you for the the spiritual eyes and the spiritual heart that you give us. I pray today for anyone in the sound of my voice who has never turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. Thank you that you laid on him the iniquity of us all. God, that on him was placed my sin and my guilt. And that as I placed my faith and trust in him many years ago, Lord, I was forgiven and given his righteousness. Do that work, Lord, in someone's heart today. And then, Lord, for those of us who are your children, like David, called, adopted, 
and loved. God, show us this day, I pray, what needs to be confessed and brought to light, what needs to be repented of and turned away from and forsaken. Help us, Lord, flee to you. And I pray that in Jesus' gracious name. Amen.